This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Matthew G. Kirschenbaum discusses his new book, Track Changes. Then PW's Senior Correspondent Claire Kirk recaps this year's BookCon. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. Well, Mark, while you were out last week, yes. we had a billion fiction debuts. And this week, all of those same books are still on the list, and we have almost no fiction debuts. So, oh. um, I'm sorry to have missed the fiction debuts then. <laughs> well, you'll just have to go back and listen to yeah, it. Carolyn and I had, <laughs> had a lot of fun going over those. Right. Um, but I, I talked myself hoarse listening all of those new books last week. And, uh, and this week, there's just three new books. Uh, on the top 25, but they are all pretty notable. Mm-hmm. Uh, at uh, number eight, and so one through seven are um, pretty much the same books that they've been. Uh, James Patterson, Danielle Steele, and David Baldacci are all sort of duking it out at the top. Um, John Sanford also up there, and uh, you know, Nora Roberts. It's the time of year when all these big <laughs> names put out big books. Um, but as I was saying, at number eight, uh, by Louise Erdrich, we have La Rose, and uh, we, we gave this a starred review, and PW said that Erdrich spins a powerful, resonant story with masterly finesse. As in her novel, The Roundhouse, she explores the quest for justice and the thirst for retribution. And the setting is a North Dakota Ojibwe reservation and a nearby town which adds some complexity to the mm, plot right uh, and uh, there are some uh, mystical elements uh, which Erdrich introduces seamlessly um, and we'd say they're lightened by scenes of everyday life old ladies in assisted living home squabbling about sex uh, teenage girls creating their own homemade beauty spa and Erdrich raises suspense by introducing another related act of retribution to the one that starts off the book, culminating in a memorable and satisfying ending. Uh, so that's at number eight. And then uh, just a little below it at number 10 is Troublemaker by Linda Howard. We also gave this a star review. Um, so it's an exceptionally engaging novel of romantic suspense, um, starting with a sniper shooting and nearly killing uh, the leader of uh, the deadly top secret GO team, or GO stands for Global Offensives. This is kind of a black ops team Mm -hmm. and um, the the story evolves from there uh, with an interesting uh, romantic spin on it and uh, we say that Howard's strong characters including uh, a number of locals in a small town keep the pages turning until the climactic confrontation so that's at number 10 and then I've got to go all the way down to number 24 to find the last debut on the list which is The Noise of Time by Julian Barnes Uh, we have a signature review of this in PW Um, by Anthony Mara, uh, who is the author of The Tsar of Love and Techno. And the signature review says um, this is a a magnificent biographical novel about Dmitry Shostakovich, uh, the renowned Russian composer. 
And uh, Shostakovich purportedly declared Mm -hmm. near the end of his life, the majority of my symphonies are tombstones. And uh, Mara says that this book then is a journey into the shadows of his personal cemetery, the Soviet Union at mid-century. So this is a novel stretching across uh, almost the entirety of Shostakovich's life, though uh, it mostly omits his experiences in World War II. Um, and he says that novels about artistic achievement rarely do justice to their subjects, but this, the noise of time is that rarity, a novel of tremendous grace and power. Um, so that's uh, definitely one to look for if you're a fan of music, a fan of history. Um, right. You know, pretty pretty major book there. And finally, I just wanted to note one book that's not new, but is uh, moving up the list in an interesting way. Uh, At number nine, we have After You by Jojo Moyes. Um, Last week, it was at number 18. It's getting a significant boost uh, from all of the buzz surrounding the forthcoming movie of Me Before You, which also has tie-in editions on both the trade paperback and the mass market paperback lists at number one. Um, mm. So that movie isn't even out yet. It's coming out in wow. the beginning of June, right. but they're doing this sort of pre-release publicity push. The author is touring around the country and uh, clearly lots and lots of interest. Wow. Great. So that's what we've got on the fiction side. What about over in nonfiction? So we have a few. Uh, uh, number three, uh, we have one of my favorites, uh, Nathaniel Philbrick, uh, who often writes on colonial America and Revolutionary War America. He wrote a book uh, called The Mayflower. Uh, uh, and uh, To the Heart of the Sea, he writes about shipping um, and, and adventures on the sea. And this one is Valiant Ambition, George Washington, Benedict Arnold, and the Fate of the American Revolution. And he, he has a way of, of taking convenient truths or what, you know, supposed truths, and he kind of turns them on its end. And uh, here uh, we say that he relates the four years of the Revolutionary War in a compulsively readable and fascinating narrative uh, prefacing his account with a provocative description of what really happened during the American Revolution. This is from our our, uh, review. Our reviewer says, Philbrook presents Washington's weaknesses as a military commander without apology and contextualizes Arnold's eventual betrayal of his country in the context of a long list of slights against him so um again this is this is he he, his his uh, narratives are really gripping uh historical narratives uh so not surprised it's at number three and the next one at number six is called unashamed drop the baggage pick up your freedom fulfill your destiny by christine kane uh this is a zondervan uh, publication and kane's an international speaker and she's the co-founder of propel women and here she shares her history i'm reading from the review of being rejected bullied and sexually abused and feeling that she was destined to never find a spiritual community because of her greek heritage now um this is one of, uh, I think, three titles, uh, Christian titles, uh, with Unashamed. Yeah, we talked about one of them last week, Carolyn and I, um, that uh, debuted at number four by Christian rapper Lecrae. Mm. And uh, there's another one coming out on June 30th by biblical counselor Heather Davis Nelson. So oh. um, shame and I think uh, refuting the idea of shame is just a very, very big topic in Christian literary circles oh, right, right now. Ex- yeah, exactly. Uh, we say the book is both dynamic confession and a motivational guide for women striving to live free from 
past shame. At number 11 is, uh, uh, well, uh, Donald Trump's Crippled America, How to Make America Great Again, originally published in 2015, and uh, not surprising, it's it's making its way up the list right now. At number seven, we have, I'm sorry, number 17, we have a cookbook. Uh, this is by a Chicago cook. It's called Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling. Uh, we say in our review, uh, readers will be de- delighted to learn that that the man who willingly calls himself Meathead can still be trusted with a collection that has science in its subtitle. So he, he, he talks about this all different kinds of grilling, um, marinating, um, and uh, it's uh, obviously it's, a, it's kind of a big book. He's got recipes for combining parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme, uh, almost so that he that he, just so he can call it Simon and Garfunkel rub. So anyway, that's at number 17. Uh, then at number 21, a science book by Sean Carroll, The Big Picture on the Origins of Life, Meaning, and the Universe Itself. Carroll's a theoretical physicist at Caltech, and here he marshals, in, uh, marshals an impressive array of scientific information to convince readers that the universe and everything in it can be explained by science. So, uh, number 21. We have a, a few books on the list. This is at number 24, a series called God's Promises for Graduates, Class of mm. 2016. We have pink, uh, uh, ostensibly for, um, I think, pink and blue for the new uh, King James Version. So, uh, uh, they seem to like to, to divide it by... Um, Pink and blue. I believe so, yeah. So this is the pink one. <laughs> uh, and then at number 25, uh, the last one we actually have, uh, you had mentioned a movie time. This is another one, The mm. Art of uh, Zootopia, uh, which is the the animated movie that um, has been getting, um, drawing the attention of lots of kids and adults alike. And that's what we have on our nonfiction So the pink edition of that uh, Christian book for graduates made it onto the bestseller list, but the blue one hasn't. The blue one is on there, but further down. Ah, I see. I believe so. I'd have to, I'd actually have to check that. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's very interesting. I wonder why that is. Are there um, more, more girls uh, who are, you know, or I should say young women, if they're college graduates um, who are uh, that involved in faith communities, or is it um, more people who think that, uh, these young women need some God to keep them on the straight and narrow as they go out into the real world. I, I wonder what's behind that yeah. phenomenon. Yeah, and um, there's actually I think there's three of them on the list, and we can. Uh, uh, it, is there a is there a beige a edition beige. That's, <laughs> yeah, right. that's neutral that <laughs> you should, can give to should, anybody? We should check. I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Matthew G. Kirschenbaum gives us a literary history of word processing. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Benedict Jacker. I'm the author of the Alex Ferris series, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Matthew G. Kirschenbaum on the line, and his new book is Track Changes, A Literary History of Word Processing. Matthew, I'm so glad you could join us. Hi, Rose. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. Um, So tell us first, what was the inspiration for this book? The book really came from a question that I realized I didn't know the answer to, and that question was, who wrote the first novel using a word processor? So I am an English professor, and I'm interested in the history of writing and the history of technology. So that seemed like the sort of thing I really should know. 
but I didn't. So I, I went to Google, and it turns out nobody else really seemed to know either. So I, I thought I would try to find out, and I, I think I did. But I also, in the course of researching the book, realized that there were other kinds of uh, questions to ask as well besides who got there first. So what are some of those other questions? Well, questions about the the relationship between word processing and the actual labor of writing, the work of writing. It turns out that writing is really hard work, not just in the in- intellectual or the creative sense, but the uh, the actual work of uh, re- typing and revising a manuscript, and that in turn opened up into questions related to um, the ways in which writers work with assistants and secretaries. Uh, There's a gender component to that question. And so it really also became a book not just about the history of technology, but about the history of labor work in relation to writing and uh, with with a gender component as well. So um, what did your research turn up? Uh, Who who did you find was the first person to write uh, a novel? And and how, how would you go about finding that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll answer the second question first, which is that you know, the, the research process was really interesting for me. I, it involved some traditional archival research, except nowadays what even archival research entails, it's not just about looking at manuscripts. Um, archival material is nowadays what we call born digital, and so I also looked at uh, computer diskettes belonging to writers and the, the documents that came off of them. Um, I tried to look at um, actual writers' computers when I could. I built my own collection of older vintage computers so that I could run some of these original software programs like WordStar, for example, for myself to see what they were like to use. I did a lot of oral history, talking to both writers and technologists. I spent a lot of time looking through magazines like the Writer's Digest, as well as computer magazines from the day. So it was a really, it was it was very much a, a, a multi-faceted um, approach because there's, uh, it, the, the history is, is so recent that um, you really, I found that, that I really needed to, to actually reach out and uh, speak with people, and that's, that's frankly where uh, some of my, my best information came from. To answer the question about who was first, um, of course, what I learned is that the answer to that question um, is, is really variable, depending on what we mean exactly by word processing. Um, but what you started to see, if we could actually move backwards in time. Um, What you started to see by the late 1970s, there were some writers who were putting together their own home computer systems, and this was still before you had big-name brands like Apple and Commodore and the TRS-80, but you had writers putting together their own custom-made home computer systems. And so Jerry Pornell, a science fiction writer, um, was one of the first to do this. About five years before that, in the early 1970s, John Hersey, who we know, I think, he's most 
well known for the book Hiroshima um, as a journalist, but he's also a novelist. And in the early 1970s, John Hersey used a mainframe computer mm. at Yale University um, to, um, to, to do one of his books, one of his novels. But there's an earlier contender than either of those, and so the best answer I have to the question of who got there first is a British novelist named Len Dayton. Huh. Uh, Len, Len Dayton, if you know his work, yeah. he wrote spy and espionage thrillers, um, mm-hmm. sort of the Tom Clancy of his day, and he was very commercially successful. So in the mid-1960s, he was able to buy for his own home use uh, the first piece of equipment IBM actually had on the market as a word processor. Uh, it had no screen, there wasn't software, but it was a an electric typewriter, a Selectric, with a magnetic tape attachment that would record all the keystrokes. And it was actually his secretary, Eleanor Handley, who was the one who learned to use it and who did the actual processing on it. And so that takes us back to those gender and labor considerations that I mentioned. And the book that they did on it was called Bomber. It was published in 1970, and it's a novel about World War II. So that's my candidate. That's my best candidate to answer the the who got there first question. So the 1960s, well, I I think, you know, if you ask people, uh, when did word processors show up, they would not go that far back. They'd say maybe the 1970s or maybe the 1980s. And um, You know, I, I, uh, my, my parents are novelists. And I definitely remember by the, the early '80s, they were uh, writing uh, their novels on computers, and uh, this still seemed kind of exotic and new at the time. So, mm-hmm. what, what was going on in, in, you know, roughly around 1964 when your book begins? Um, yeah. That, that, you know, where did word processors come from? Yeah, well, they came from the office, and so it's interesting that nowadays, of course, we we use uh, something like Microsoft Word, and it's part of something that we call the office suite, and that's actually very true to the, the conceptual origins of word processing, but you know, word processing, ha- the, the term itself has had its own interesting history. It originally was not a piece of computer software. It wasn't even a piece of computer hardware in the 1960s word processing was a managerial concept. It was a way of organizing um, information flow primarily in the terms of in, in, in terms of actual paperwork through a busy office. So it was about dictation, it was about typing, it was about filing and cross-filing and mailing and distribution. And so if you look, for example, at an early IBM product catalog from, say, the late 60s, early 70s, under the heading of word processing, you will also find voice dictation equipment, because that was thought part of word processing, too. Sure. And though, so you, you really have, it's really a, a technology um, that originates in the office, and uh, the people who performed those tasks, uh, almost always women, became known as word processors themselves, and so word processing also became a vocation. And then it was only then that you had the emergence of specialized first hardware that we called word processors, and then, of course, software. 
So um, what changed when uh, the IBM Selectric, which you mentioned, and then later other electric typewriters came along? The term that I use for this in the book is suspended inscription. And what that means is that there's a a gap between the moment of the moment in which a word or a sentence is initially written and composed and the moment at which it's committed to some kind of permanent um, storage, so you know, typically paper. So for something like the early IBM equipment, the medium was magnetic tape. Mm. And so your words, your sentences would be recorded on the tape in a way in which it was very easy to manipulate and change. Um, and the moment at which they would then actually be output to paper, the moment of inscription, was, if you will, suspended indefinitely. Um, and while the text remained in that semi-fluid state on the tape, it could be revised, corrected, changed as many times as the, the author wished. So that's what I mean by suspended inscription. And to me, more so than a screen, even more than the sort of mental picture that we have of something like a typewriter attached to a TV set, suspended inscription really captures for me the the essence of what word processing was and is and why it was so important historically, because no previous writing technology had, had permitted that. So you know we have these uh, you know you, you see in old movies uh, images of of journalists when they when they got something when they're typing out something and uh, they got something wrong they'd rip the sheet of paper out and start again and then you would have uh, later on you would have the, the the white the correction out that you could type over uh, uh, an error and and still keep the page intact or at least the sentence intact. Um, what what changed in the writing process, if anything? Did you what what did you find? Yeah, well, so I think that um, yeah, what what really changed is that the the act of inspiration and composition and the act of revision uh, became much more uh, intermingled with one another. So a, a typewriter, um, you know, even correction fluid and early sort of you know, electronic typewriters that had a little bit of onboard memory, um, writing with a typewriter is a, it's a very linear segmented process. You, you, you press the key, the character is imprinted on the page, the carriage trundles forward word by word, line by line, and you have to really approach revision as an entirely separate activity. Uh, you rewrite the, the book, the manuscript from the beginning, and of course with, with word processing, all of that suddenly um, changed. And one of the, I think, really interesting ways that writers used word processors, even from very early on, was not just to, to backspace and correct typos or even to work and rework a particular sentence, but having the document, the manuscript in digital form, gave them a kind of complete access to the the entirety of the text. So they would use the search feature, for example, um, to try to modulate their their own style. And so if a writer had a particular tick, for example, and gravitated towards a particular word, there was a way in which they could track 
how um, that was actually unfolding in the manuscript that was at hand by searching for particular words, by searching for turns of phrase. Uh, Stanley Elkin is somebody who's in the book who comments on this in particular, and the way in which having his first word processor, which he obtained as a result of um, a medical condition, the, the MS that he suffered from, um, which made typing physically very difficult for him. But what he found was that having the word processor, besides making the typing easier, it also allowed him to think about his, his novels as um, essentially c complete entities in ways that you know, the process of handwriting or typing them uh, made very difficult. So um, one of the authors you mentioned in your book uh, who adapted to and experimented with word processors is Isaac Asimov. And I'm curious about that because there was actually, for many years in New York, there was a shop called the Science Fiction Bookshop that had his first computer on display in the window because oh, we, we, were so, we were so sort of, I, I would always walk by and think, how weird is it that that we we just we prize this artifact? It would be like having mm -hmm. you know one of Hemingway's pens or something, but it's a mm -hmm. computer. Um, I can't remember, of course, now what kind of computer it was. Yeah, but it was well, it was it was a TRS eighty. That's mm -hmm. the story I tell in the book. Was it the actual <laughs> was it the actual computer or was it simply the same model? Um, at least they claimed that it was the actual machine that he actually wrote wow. his work on. Yeah, but okay. it was such a fascinating artifact. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, what you learned about how he used that particular machine and how it changed his writing. Yeah, so Asimov um, is interesting, and he's in the book not just because he's Isaac Asimov, but because he actually wrote several very detailed accounts um, of his um, learning to use the, the technology. He, he wrote them for a, a magazine called Popular Computing. And just that that was its own um that that was its own sort of genre piece at the time you had a lot of writers who would sort of write up the story of their first computer their first word processor which was as you can imagine an important resource for researching sure. the book but in Asimov's case um he was despite the fact that he was so well known as both a scientist and a science fiction author he came to word processing relatively late. He he gets the TRS-80 in 1983, which was, as we discussed earlier, by the early 1980s, the, the sea change was already taking place. Mm -hmm. Asimov is a little bit of a latecomer, but he accepts a commission from Popular Computing to write the series of articles about learning to use a word processor, and he does it in ways that are very humorous, but also revelatory. And one of the things that he talks about, for example, is how self-conscious he suddenly becomes of the errors and imperfections in his um, in his typescripts. And whereas previously he would have simply left those to a copy editor to correct um, with the word processor at his disposal, um, he, he finds that he can't resist spending time lingering over the um, over the the draft himself trying to copy edit him copy edit it himself uh, getting it into letter perfect um, shape as 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 they said at the time and what's interesting to me about that is the way that it speaks to um, it comes back to that notion of authorial labor the kind of work that writers do 
and the distribution of that labor. So on the one hand, word processing is supposed to be a time saver because it makes writing easier, but as the Asimov story suggests, writers also found themselves doing new kinds of work that might previously have been um, distributed elsewhere in the the publication um, process. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Matthew G. Kirschenbaum, author of Track Changes about the literary history of word processing, which is totally fascinating. Um, so uh, there's still people who handwrite everything first. Um, you know, how how does that how did that sort of become uh, an antiquated way almost of doing things? And and how has even handwriting uh, fiction changed in the word processing era? I think a lot of um, writers um, still work longhand at at some point in their process. Um, I'm sitting and taking notes longhand now as as we're speaking. And if you think about the way that all of us write in on a day to day basis, I think it's 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 really hard to sort of make those. Uh, sort of absolutes or binaries stick, right? We we, we we write at keyboards, but we we still use pens. We 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 value Moleskine notebooks, and we we write in all kinds of ways on all kinds of surfaces all the time. And I found that in the course of researching the the kinds of work habits that different writers had. Um, Lots of writers would go back and forth. Sometimes they would try out different things. So you know, sometimes you know, somebody might move to um, to longhand you know, to, to to do a book. And so I think writers are always experimenting with their their writing instruments. And there's nothing sort of absolute about working with the computer that uh, obviates that. Is there something that, uh, um, in the process of word, in, you know, in the process of word processing, that uh, that we did better as writers? One of the, I mean, I, th- I think one of the questions that people often have about word processing and digital writing more generally, and it's a really important question. It's 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 the question of what remains, what's what's left of, of that process. And in particular, um, if we think about the implications for literary history, for archival knowledge, um, you know, we we love having access to things like a writer's correspondence. We love looking at literary manuscripts and being able to quite literally track the changes by seeing where words are crossed out and penciled in. And I think there's there's a there's a very um, real and very understandable anxiety that that kind of very tactile knowledge, understanding access to the literary process, essentially gets wiped out when we're talking about 
pixels on a screen. And uh, to some extent, that's that's true. On the other hand, um, interested in precisely the ways that um, you know, digital manuscripts allow us to look into the creative process in ways that would have been unthinkable. And so there's, then, uh, there's, there's a novelist named Max Barry, for example, who um, records all of his drafts in the same kind of software that um, actual software engineers use. It's called a versioning system. And it's much more granular than even the standard track changes feature. So you can, you can go to his website and you can look at early drafts of his books and really watch his, his writing unfold keystroke by keystroke. So, you know, we, we're always losing things. I think that's in the nature of technology, and writing is always a, a process that's mediated by technologies. But I think we're also, um, we're, we're gaining really important and interesting things as well. So you talked a little bit about gendered labor, and I'd love to go back to that concept. Um, the the women who were secretaries, who were transcriptionists, and um, and at the time, uh, and you know, still to an extent today, but certainly more so um, fifty years ago, uh, there was a sense that that men were writers, and then the women were the word processors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and even more so that. Um, men were speakers and women were, were writers. Uh, certainly in an office setting, um, it would be the case that the, the male business executive would, would speak and writing was seen as, as women's work. The, the act of um, transcribing the dictation um, was something that, that women did. Um, I, you know, if you look at the, the early, um, instruction manuals that would come with word processors when they were still intended primarily as office technology, um, when, um, when writers would get a word processor for themselves, um, all of the imagery that they would encounter as they were going through the manuals and the tutorials, uh, it would almost universally be of female operators. And so that's, that's a really sort of interesting uh, dynamic and phenomenon to me. Um, one of the stories that I tell in the book, um, by the early 1970s, a woman named Evelyn Barretson, who um, was somebody who was was very entrepreneurial and founded her own word processing company. They, they made a piece of equipment called the Redactron and advertised for it in the inaugural issue of Miss Magazine. And so there was very much a notion that by allowing a machine to take over the the work of writing, the, the labor of word processing, women would be empowered in ways that were in keeping with, with the early women's movement. And so Evelyn Berezin's story is a way in which that yeah, that, that ethos actually found its way into the computer manufacturing industry, and she she ran a successful company for a number of years, marketing word processors in that way. So, you know, it seems to me that more than most genres of you know, software or things that we do at the computer, word processing was very clearly gendered from from the outset, and it was only, I think. You know, somewhat gradually over time, certainly throughout the 1980s, that using a word processor lost um, some of those original connotations of women's work. 
I, I remember uh, how novel it was that my grandfather was able to type, which for a, a man of his generation and, and sort of on the executive side of the business world was very unusual. Yes, indeed. Um, so also you mentioned an author with multiple sclerosis who used a word yeah. processor. Um, I was wondering how the extent to which you address um, word processing and disability word processors as assistive devices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a little bit of that in the book. Um, I, there's a little bit about Stephen Hawking, for example, who, um, uh, you know, essentially all of his um, you know, interactions, all of his conversations are a, a form of, of word processing, and others have written about him as well. Um, so I only touch on that story briefly. Um, there's a way in which, you know, if you look at the history of writing technology, the ultimate fantasy, it seems to me, is the complete sort of um, elimination of the need for any external device or technology to to mediate our relationship to writing. So what we're really talking about is writing by thought. And certainly if you look at the way that technologists um, think about writing. I'm thinking of someone like Vannevar Bush, for example, who famously wrote an essay called As We May Think in 1945, which, among other things, really predicted what we now think of as the web today. Um, Bush also really fantasized about um, eliminating the need to, uh, you know, to, to type or to write by hand, we would think and our writing would appear on a screen. And interestingly, um, and there's, there are all sorts of ways in which it seems to me that that desire, that fantasy is a way of you know, sort of thinking past some of the uncomfortable ways in which writing becomes a a form of labor, the fact that writing is always going to be somebody's work. But nowadays, there is real research and real science around those kinds of neural interfaces to writing, um, particularly in the the area of of adaptive technology. Um, And there has been um, successful work in allowing people to, to essentially write by thinking. Whether we're all going to get there one day, that's, um, that's not something that I'm going to try to predict. So what are some of your other favorite stories um, of authors and how they approached word processing, what they learned from word processing? Um, just a couple of the, the anecdotes that really stuck with you from the book. Yeah, sure. So there's there's one I really like that involves Amy Tan, and um, it turns out that she um, she she is a computer geek, um, a, a self admitted, a self professed one. So I, I hope it's okay that I I say that on the air. Um, but um, in the early 1980s, before she um, got started with her her fiction writing career, um, she um, she founded what was known as a users group. It was essentially a computer support group that she called Bad Sector, uh, which is a wonderful name. It comes from a particular type of computer error message. Um, but it was for users of the, the K-Pro computer, which was one of the, the early uh, portable computers then on the market. And she was using it herself as part of her own tech writing career. Uh, but she put together um, this wonderfully named users group of fellow K-Pro users and you know, talks about sort of, um, you know, of meetings at which people would be you know, demoing software while they were 
sipping wine and eating chocolate, and it's it's just a wonderful story. Um, and it's a way of sort of, I think, opening up a little bit of her, her early biography as well, um, what she was doing before she, she began writing fiction, um, and the way in which I think a number of writers turn out to sort of have these unanticipated uh, relationships um, to, to technology that, that are part of their, their personal histories. Um, there, there is the story of um, Stephen King and Peter Straub, uh, both of whom bought their first word processors so that they could collaborate on, on writing the talisman together. And um, what they managed to do was not only to um, use each use a word processor, but because Stephen King was up in Maine and Straub was living in, I believe, Connecticut at the time, uh, they were using a modem. This goes back to 1983, 1984. Wow. They were they were using a modem to um, you know swap files back and forth. And you know, Peter Straub talks about the way in which he even needed to learn a little bit of computer programming to to make that work. And so, you know, the the notion of one of us reprogramming the way Microsoft Word works um, seems pretty far fetched. But that was the kind of thing that it was fairly routine for users to be doing back in the day. And so that 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 becomes a really fun story about Peter Straub and Stephen King, um, essentially emailing pieces of the talisman back and forth to one another. Early early computer hackers in unexpected places. Exactly. We've been talking with Matthew G. Kirschenbaum, and you can find his book, Track Changes, A Literary History of Word Processing, in stores right now. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior Correspondent Claire Kirk recaps BookCon in Chicago. Stay tuned. I'm Dookie Hong. And I'm Matt Rodbard. We're the authors of Koreatown, a cookbook, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW senior correspondent Claire Kirk is here to tell us all about this year's BookCon. Hello, Claire. Hi, Mark. Hi, Rose. Hi, it's great to talk to you again. So last week you called in and told us all about BEA, and this week we want to know all about BookCon, which is the uh, affiliated event for readers, not just for publishing professionals. Yes. um, Less than 24 hours after the booksellers had vacated McCormick Place and BEA had wound down, uh, the convention center was transformed into a literary amusement park. Oh. And, uh, yeah, BookCon was just, it, it, there was a carnival-like atmosphere. Uh, there were 7,200 people there this year. Very nice. And it was, it was nonstop excitement, happy people, smiling people, uh, lots of noise. Uh, I, I felt like I was at the state fair the Minnesota State Fair, because there were just so many people there and friendly people, and um, a lot of the publishers had, like, these uh, roulette wheels, and there were long lines of people, and uh, you would spin the wheel, and you would get a prize. And the prize could be a galley, or it could be some book swag, 
or the price could be you got every all of the ga- uh, one of each of the galleys on the display or, uh, or just your choice of galley and the, it was a lot of fun I had a good time well, that sounds very entertaining. And I'm, I'm sort of picturing, you say, an amusement park, and I'm picturing, like, roller coasters in the Javits Center kind of thing. But maybe... You know, the roller coasters <laughs> were just about the only thing missing. It was popcorn and lemonade and, like I said, those spinning wheels. But, yeah, if they had had some rides, that, that definitely <laughs> would have completed it. Twist, <laughs> twisty like and turny, like your favorite ride. thriller. Yeah. Um, so tell us about some of the authors who were there. Oh, my gosh, the authors. Okay. Um, first, I, I just want to talk about the demographics of sure. um, BookCon. That, that, uh, I've been to all three BookCons now. And uh, what was interesting to me was last year it seemed to be younger teenagers because Khloe Kardashian was there. Mm-hmm. This year, uh, it's, it's the demographic was slightly older. Older teens, and a lot, I met a lot of women in their early to mid-20s, and it's no surprise because looking at the list of authors who were there, um, the, the authors that really um, people were most jazzed about were the, um, the YA authors, of course, and because that's the target demographic at, at BookCon, and it was uh, like the YA dystopian novels and the authors of YA dystopia and the authors of YA fantasy novels. Uh, Cassandra Clare was mm-hmm. the get of the show, apparently, that uh, I talked with. I went up and down the line of the earliest arrivals when I got there. I got there at 8.30. The first person who'd gotten there was had been there for three hours. She'd gotten there at three thirty a.m. Wow! And the very nice Midwestern security guards let her into the building at three thirty a.m. Wow! And um, the 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 earliest arrivals told me they'd gotten there so early. Most of them because of Cassandra Clare. She's the author of the Mortal Instruments series, and she does not tour very often. So people were most jazzed about seeing her and getting her to sign books. And uh, a lot of people also mentioned Alexandra uh, Bracken. Uh, They were jazzed to see her, and uh, she does... uh, Alexandra Bracken series is the the Darkest Mind series. And then James Dashner of the Maze Maze Runner series, he also was a big draw. But it seemed like everybody there was a big draw. Uh, Veronica Roth, of course, was there, and I went to the uh, morning panel on um, uh, good, good and Evil in YA literature with Veronica Roth, uh, Saba Tahir was there, Lauren Oliver, and Melissa De La Cruz. And I'll tell you, when they came on stage, it was, I felt like I was at a Springsteen concert. Wow. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. I mean, the fans were screaming. They were just, like, jumping up and down and screaming. They were treating these authors like literary rock stars. It was incredible. I've never seen anything like it, except at a Springsteen concert. So, so it was um, um, Kate D. Camillo was there. Sherman Alexi was there. The adults I talked to, because there were some adults there, not a lot, but there were some adults there, and um, they were most excited. The the people they told me uh, they were most excited to see were the Property Brothers. 
I was going to ask you about them because I, I heard that they were going to be there. What, what was their event like and, and who was lining up to, uh, uh, to get the books? Okay, I have to confess I missed their event. It was um, on one of the stages in the exhibit area, but I heard that it was very well attended and that like all the adults who were there <laughs> were there in full force because <laughs> you know they were interesting. I also heard uh, Tig Nataro. I don't know if I'm saying her name correctly. Yeah, the comedian. Uh, she's a comedian, and a lot of the older people I talked to were really excited to see her. So there was something for everybody. I mean, uh, Captain Underpants was there. Um, Dave Tolkien was there. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, got the, the middle grade um, audience. And he was there. And every There was something for everybody there. But it was definitely the target demographic was definitely fans of YA um, novels because most of the authors were female authors of um, YA dystopian novels or YA fantasy novels. But so, there was definitely someone for everybody. So now the, the first two book cons you went to, the first one you, you went to was in were New York City. Yeah, one day. Uh-huh. And, this and then one, last year was two days. The yeah. two days. And I wanted to ask you two things. First of all, what was the difference, um, or did you did you notice a difference with, with BookCon being in, in Chicago, in oh, the Midwest? Yeah. What was it? And um, I'll let you answer that first, because I have another question. See, the, big, the big difference was um, with it being in Chicago rather than in New York. And, other, and publishers confirmed this with me. When it was in New York, there were there was a lot more emphasis on celebrities who are quote unquote authors, mm-hmm. like um, Amy Poehler and Julianne Moore and um, um, Carrie Elwes, who starred in The Princess Bride, uh, uh, Aziz Ansari, and uh, who and like I mentioned before, Khloe Kardashian. So there was this emphasis in New York City about these big celebrities who are on television. And this year, all the celebrities were real authors. They were celebrity authors, but they are authors that the, the fans had read their books and loved them, and, the, and, and these books had changed these young people's lives. And I, so it, it was more moving because it wasn't just a bunch of groupies. Right. Uh, uh, you know, worshiping these celebrities, it was a bunch of book lovers who were who were interacting with these authors who had whose books they'd read, who whom they felt they knew in a way, and um, it was it was just a very moving sight. It was a a really happy show, and it seemed also to be a more engaged audience because of that, because there was that frame of reference that the fans had actually read the books mm-hmm. of these authors and were treating them like literary celebrities. And also, I also felt I really liked the BookCon staff and the McCormick security staff. I liked their attitude. They were enjoying themselves. The, the crowd control was so much better mm-hmm. in Chicago than it was in New York. It was chaos both years in New York. The first year was complete chaos to the point where, you know, I was I was kind of afraid. I'm a small person, and I didn't want to get run over by anybody. But but last year it was also, there was also some, you know, chaos last mm-hmm. year. 
But this year in Chicago, I don't know if it's just that Midwestern niceness, but it was the, the people who were responsible for crowd control, they were so wonderful to uh, the fans that uh, they, they were as, uh, there was this army of fans just swarming into the exhibit area at 10 a.m. And the, as they were entering the exhibit area, and it was just like thousands of them, it was, it was incredible, it was quite a sight. And the security staff was welcoming them and saying, hello, hello, welcome, welcome. And it was just, it was just a really wonderful experience. I just felt like everybody was happy. Well, you know, I, but happy, some of us. Yeah, I, I was there for, for uh, BE. We, we were both there. And I felt the same thing about the staff, um, uh, the security. Just, just everyone who worked there was enthusiastic. Um, or, or at least they were, they were amazingly helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. They went out of their way to help. Uh, they, they seemed to really enjoy the convention itself. They themselves were picking up books. And, uh, and I did attribute that to a, to a Midwestern sensibility. But, and you also made a great point about the differences between the, 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 uh, the people who were uh, reading and, and who attracted them in New York, uh, between you know, the difference between New York and Chicago. But my question is, you know, this was kind of a trial balloon, it seemed, to see, all right, how would BookCon do? Uh, we're just going to do, you know, in Chicago in the Midwest, we're going to do one day. Do you think it could have been successful as a second day? Yeah, I think so. A lot of people said to me that it was very stressful for them, uh, it being one day, because there's so much, there were, uh, how many, there were 25 panels and roundtables and, and programs. Uh, there were 50 marquee authors, 40 autographing in mm. the uh, 40 authors autographing in the autographing area. There were also more authors out on the floor signing, and there, a lot of things were overlapping. And and so many people were saying, "I wish this were two days because I'm I feel like I'm missing things because I can't do everything in one day. Mm-hmm. It's so stressful trying to do everything." And um, there, were, there was just so much going on. Also, there were people from out of town who were saying to me, this is so hard to justify coming to Chicago for one day. Mm-hmm. And some people did come to town early, and they like they either went to, there were bloggers I met who went to Book Expo. Uh, there were people who spent a few days sightseeing in Chicago before BookCon began. But uh, I would say three-fourths, I would say nine-tenths of the people I talked to preferred it being two days and one young woman one 12 year old from chicago was saying that she would love to have book on every day is loves authors so much especially veronica roth and she wished that rick riordan was had been there as well i did the publishers were very on the other hand in contrast were very relieved it was one day because we had all just been working three days at, at Book Expo, and then for one more day, it, that was doable, but there was a lot of exhaustion that, that was expressed by the publishers. So they preferred one day, but then several publishers were saying to me, and in fact, everyone was saying to me, they preferred it moving around the country. Um, some people said they would like it to be more infused with the local flavor of that city where Veronica Roth is a local author. She lives mm-hmm. in Chicago, but they really like the idea of just really an emphasis spotlighting the local celebrity authors in that city in New York or, or Chicago or San Francisco or L.A. And um, 
A lot of uh, people also said um, that, um, yeah, that two days would be good in New York, but they would have preferred that uh, two days would be in Chicago and that they do want it moving to continue around the country. And some people also said they, some publishers mentioned uh, it, they, they wanting it to expand so that like Comic-Con, which started out in San Diego and expanded to other cities, that they're hoping someday that BookCon would expand and be in several cities each year. But then you have to think about the logistics of that, that that might be problematic. Well, it sounds like those are some interesting challenges to confront, but uh, what a great problem to have that it's so popular and everyone's so enthusiastic about it that you want to do it more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love to go to it maybe in a few months from now. <laughs> yeah, take take a break. Well, Claire, thank you so much. Um, always great to have your reports, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, okay. I'll see you. I'll be seeing you all in New York uh, later this summer. All right. We'll see you then. Okay. Take care. Bye. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Ron Miscavige, and I'm the author of Rootless, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and your every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 